0: Samuel already knew about the plague cases in Deptford. Even if he hadn't, the growing numbers of boarded-up houses, giant red crosses daubed onto their doors, would have given it away. He shouldn't be here. It was risky to be here.
1: But he missed Elizabeth. It had been weeks since he'd seen her last, and her husband would be away at the shipyard today. As he scampered down the street,
0: he chewed his tobacco furtively, trying to keep away from the windows. They said it was spreading through the smells now. The sounds from the Deptford Tavern rang out past the houses, tempting him to take another risk. They seemed happy, singing and laughing in the afternoon breeze, but he didn't think
1: that that would last long.
2: Welcome to the 17th century, and to the fourth episode of our History of Pandemics season. This is the last time that we'll focus on plague, and it's the last major outbreak of that horrific disease in England. We might dispel some myths along the way. For example, it wasn't the Great Fire of London that finally defeated the disease, despite that oft-repeated narrative. And we'll drop in on one of the outbreak's most famous commentators, Samuel Pepys. Stay tuned to the end as well, as we've also included a bonus conversation on Shakespeare's experience during the earlier outbreaks, which led up to this final great plague. But first, I caught up with Paul Slack, Emeritus Professor of Early Modern Social History, to ask him whether this was the same plague strain that we saw in the Black Death.
3: It is the same disease in a less fatal form mortalities were much lower from the 16th century onwards so we're not talking about anything killing a third of the whole population of Europe Uh, but we're talking about irregular epidemics which might kill in a town 20 or 30 percent every five or ten years and they go on in England from the Black Death to the period I'm interested in which often called the Great Plague of London, 1665, 1666, which was uh, the last epidemic of plague in London, though it might not have been. There were still plagues in other parts of Europe, but they didn't affect England.
2: I asked Paul what we know about how this all began.
3: Most of it's in 1665. But it starts with rumours at the end of 1664 that there was disease, the plague, in two parishes on the outskirts of London. And with the benefit of hindsight later, a physician said he thought the disease had been brought in in a bale of cloth, probably from Holland, which had come originally from Turkey. And Turkey was thought to be the usual source of plague at this, at this time. Shipping with Holland ought to have been quarantined, but since there was a war on with the Dutch, this sort of precaution had broken down. So that's December, 1664. It then it's, There's no word of it then, but in 1665, in March, it flares up again all over the city. And by the end of 1665, it has killed about 80,000 people, getting on for 100,000 people, in a city of half a million. London, by this stage, was the largest city in Europe. So this is a large death toll in a very large city. Within London, the distribution of deaths from plague was of course skewed, partly socially and partly topographically. The largest numbers of the uh, those who caught plague were in both the East End and the West End. They were in Stepney and Whitechapel in the East, and in uh, St Martin's in the Fields and Westminster in the West. But there were notably few deaths in the middle of the city, in the old walled city, which was the main business quarter. The reason for that was that the uh, richer sort, as they were called, in the centre of the city, got out of town pretty quickly to uh, their friends in the countryside. And much of the inner city was left deserted. So what happened was that the uh, the main brunt of mortality uh, was borne by the poorest sections of the population, very large numbers of them. And it's the flight of the large section of the prosperous that explains why there was such a concentration of mortality among the poor in London.
2: Did the local authorities take any action to try to
3: slow the spread? The regular policy against plague in England was to isolate those who were infected together with their relations in their own houses with the doors locked up and marked with a cross so that no one can move in or out. Whole households were shut up together if one of them caught plague. Now this was known at the time to be a primitive practice when compared with policies enforced In more civilized parts of Europe, like Italy, where it was common to try to separate the infected from their contacts and their relations and to isolate both groups in separate institutions, (laughs) an enormously costly investment in hospitals and lazaretti in cities like Florence. In London, however, there was only a handful of special plague hospitals, pest houses around the city, and they were obviously incapable of coping with the numbers we're talking about. People had to be isolated at home. Now, it's not surprising that that policy was enormously unpopular and was criticised at the time by some physicians as counterproductive. If you shut up those initially infected, with their contacts, you are going to increase mortality very quickly. In any case, it was impossible to enforce this policy rigorously. There were riots in St. Giles' Parish, where it started when it was first imposed, and shutting people up in their houses had to be abandoned altogether in September as the number of people infected increased. The sick and their contacts were allowed out, much to the horror of people like Samuel Pepys and other respectable citizens still in town who were terrified of catching plague. Pepys had already been appalled by stories he heard of sick people leading out of their windows and, as he says, deliberately breathing in the faces of people who were passing by.
2: This seems like a good time to introduce one of our key contemporary sources for the period, a name many of us associate with the great fire of 1666, Samuel Pepys. I asked one of the experts on his life, Oxford's Dr. Keyes Windland, who exactly Pepys was.
1: Right, um, Samuel Pepys's diary, which cover the entire decade of the, the 1660s, have become really one of the, the, the most celebrated, justly celebrated uh, sources uh, for uh, social historians of, of the Restoration period. Uh, and that's, that's largely due to the, the, the rich detail that he provides. Pepys doesn't appear to have any filters. He, he just writes about everything that happens to him. Uh, and the, uh, the, the plague itself uh, almost disappears from, from much of what he has to say about that year 1665 uh, because there's so much else going on in his life he's a young man on the make he's 32 years old Uh, he uh, came from very humble origins Uh, he was uh, the son of a tailor growing up just outside the Ludgate, so in what was technically the west end at that time but his family was fortunately for Samuel uh, very well connected in their their home region of Huntingdonshire. Uh, and as a consequence, he was able to, to first of all, uh, acquire a good grammar school education. He went to St. Paul's, which at that time was uh, just next to the cathedral. And from there, he went to Cambridge and became um, the private secretary to Edward Montague, who was made the Earl of Sandwich. At that point, um, Samuel Pepys became secretary to the Navy office, with a house attached to the Navy Office in Seething Lane, just just uh, a stone's throw from from Tower Hill, and 1665 was uh, really the great turning point for him. Uh, he was making enormous amounts of money uh, compared to most people at that time. The plague is raging, and he celebrated the fact um, that he just spent a, a day of fasting, which had been decreed, you know, for uh, for the plague. He spent that totting up his savings and discovered that he was worth 1,900 pounds, which in today's money is about 200,000. Or, calculating how a skilled craftsman might earn, if he were lucky enough to, to spend 80 years working flat out, he might have made that kind of money. So, uh, for, for a young man of 32, who started out with absolutely nothing. Uh, he, he was doing extremely well uh, out of this, uh, this office he'd been given, as a reward, obviously, uh, and to ensure his loyalty to the family, to the Montagues.
2: So when does Pepys first mention the plague in his diaries?
1: Uh, his, his first entry, and uh, I certainly hope that I'm not wrong here, I don't think I am, was on the 7th of June. And he was on a shopping trip, which wasn't uh, unusual for Samuel. He liked his shopping, he liked his clothes. In fact, he he writes about his clothes nearly as much as he does about the plague through that summer. Uh, He was um, visiting the West End and he was in the New Exchange, which was a sort of a shopping mall, early 17th century shopping mall in, in competition with the Royal Exchange in the city itself. He does not relate what he bought there, but as he was walking back into the city, he passed by Drury Lane and he noticed that there were some shut up houses so these were houses, obviously, with a red cross daubed onto the door, God help us, on the door. And that alarmed him. And he went immediately into a shop and he bought some tobacco, uh, as he said, to chew and to smell. It was a conviction, as probably some of uh, your, your other contributors have mentioned, that uh, tobacco was regarded as a, a kind of a panacea against infection. Oh, he was also, made an interesting reference to, to being concerned about his own smell take that for what it's worth. So that's, that was his first reference. And at that time, uh, the the plague was only to be found in certain streets in the West End. I think Longacre Street was, was a, a hot spot. And uh, the, the bills of mortality by the end of that month uh, were no more than, I, I think, the, the last um, week of that month of June, something like 267 dead of the plague. So they said, but um, Pepys himself uh, understood that in fact, that figure was probably uh, an underestimate of the reality. So he, he, he was under no illusions about, about the official figures, in a way perhaps which is going to ring some bells for many people today.
3: So we have a picture of a scarcely controlled infection in London in the middle of the summer of 1665. Pepys stayed in the city for most of the time because he had a job in the naval office, Uh, but he sent his wife away down the river to Woolwich in July, and he followed her there in August, I think, at the height of the infection. The city was increasingly a place of the poor. There were some respectable people who had to stay there And what amazes me about the Great Plague of 1665 is how some semblance, more than a little semblance, of good government remained. There was never any great threat to social order in London. There are a lot of rumors about there being riots in the streets, but we don't actually find them. As always in these circumstances of plague, some people who you might expect to stay in the city because they had duties there, like, let us say, physicians or clergymen, some of them left, um, following their, um, in the case of physicians, following their richer patrons. One of them was Thomas Sydenham, a famous physician who, after, who left London Afterwards, wrote a book about plague. Though so it's not clear that he'd ever seen actually seen a case. <laughs> and there were, uh, but there were people who filled the gaps. So you got unlicensed medical practitioners stepping in to help those who were sick if they could afford to pay them, and certainly nonconformist clergy moving in to fill the gaps left by the clergy who had left.
2: I was fascinated to learn more about what life might have been like in the city
3: at this time,
2: and Keyes pointed out that there's more than one account to choose from.
1: Uh, unlike uh, many people, certainly if, if one reads uh, that, that latter-day um, history of the year by Daniel Defoe, 1722, uh, the plague is, 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 is central to Defoe's accounts. And I think that that really has shaped um, many people's understanding of the plague. Uh, I don't think it was really so different from many people's experience today, although, of course, the dangers were far greater. The mortality rate was something on the order of 65 to 80 percent of those who, who caught the plague. People got on with their lives because they needed to. In that sense, I don't think that Pepys' experience was unusual in that kind of condition. There was nothing he could do, other than obviously uh, avoid courting obvious danger. Uh, Nobody really understood how the thing was caught, but you certainly didn't want to linger in places where you knew there there was a lot of plague about. Having said that, on some occasions, he he would actually, surprisingly, put himself in, in considerable risk usually for the sake of visiting some woman. For example, uh, Mrs. Bagwell, who uh, had wished herself on Peeps as, as his mistress at the behest of her husband, who was a, a ship's carpenter and wanted a better ship to be appointed to. Be to. He, he'd visit her down in Deptford, uh, which was actually a, a plague hotspot at that time, and he knew it. So uh, there's obviously a lot of different conflicting motivations going on uh, for Samuel.
2: So it wasn't all doom and gloom for Pepys, then?
1: If if he was intent to have a good time, it was for for some very pragmatic reasons as far as he was concerned. He engaged in a a lot of drinking, a lot of eating, and a lot of music making. In fact, his most famous composition, uh, Beauty Retire, a song called Beauty Retire, was written during this period. Uh, At at the end of the year, he always provides a summary at the end of the year. He said he'd he'd never lived so well, nor earned so much in his entire life, as he did during the plague year.
2: That surprised me, given what we know about the plague. And I wondered how his particular experience compared to that of others in the city.
1: Yes, well, I think, again, you know, it's, it's useful to consult um, our own experience in these extraordinary times. Uh, a single narrative uh, just doesn't ring true, does it? Uh, pe- people are experiencing what's happening in all sorts of different ways. And uh, aside from... Uh, the illness and everybody's concern about the spread of that illness. Uh, There are all sorts of winners and losers on all sorts of different levels. So we, we, we mustn't lose sight of the forest by focusing on a single tree.
2: And as Paul had already pointed out, Pepys wasn't in London for the whole of this outbreak.
1: I'm glad you you raised that. Uh, The the general assumption is that he was, but in fact, no, he wasn't. (laughs) He he spent a great deal of time uh, in Woolwich, um, visiting Mrs. Bagwell, of course, on occasion, um, but but also because the the, the Navy office itself was moved uh, down to Greenwich. Uh, and uh, in the second half of September, for example, uh, the, the plague almost disappears from his, his, his daily accounts because he's spending a, a great deal of time uh, down in Greenwich and, and on, on ships in the fleet, indeed. He, he does note at one point that, uh, that, that there was uh, one crew member um, apparently sick of the plague, but it was only a, a single person. And in fact, the Navy did not suffer through the whole summer, whether by, by good management or luck, I, I don't know. Uh, he, he did go into London, I think it was on the 14th of September, sometime in the middle of September. And he noted how empty the streets were. Uh, he went to the Royal Exchange. He said there were no more than 50 people in the whole structure, which I found a little bit surprising because, I mean, 50 people under the circumstances seems rather a lot. But he said they were of, of the common sort. There was, there was nobody of any quality or importance. So, so there's, there's your reference to class, I suppose, from from Samuel himself.
2: I often remind my students that it's important to consider the biases of our sources. And given that Peep's experience would not have been shared by the huge number of poorer people in the city, somewhat controversially, I wondered if we should really be including his testimony at all in this episode.
1: Well, I, I wish he actually uh, would become a little bit more central to the discussion because as, as I've indicated on a couple of occasions already, um, I feel that people's understanding of, of what that experience was like, is a very uh, strongly colored by the, the, the fictionalized accounts, um, not, not only uh, uh, Defoe uh, but, but to a certain extent, uh, also later um, popularizations of the diaries. I'm thinking of Arthur Bryant uh, during the, uh, the 1930s uh, who, who, who certainly approach to the subject in, in, in a way which I, I don't think really admits uh, the, the backstory of Peep's life during, during that summer. Uh, huge amount of interest, huge amount of, of, of information on different subjects. Uh, it doesn't mean that the plague was unimportant. It was obviously a terrible experience for many people. But it, it really does bring the reality to the forefront of one life, a very busy life, in the middle of this catastrophe, and how the, 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 the effects of, of, of that epidemic were really almost secondary most days through that summer, as far as he was concerned. And I don't think that he was the only one who experienced that summer in that way.
2: Returning to the broader picture, there were many people and places that did not escape as lightly as Peeps, including one now infamous
3: village, as Paul outlines. So this is 1666, the year after the Great Plague in London. And plague had arrived in the Derbyshire village of Eam, is how the locals pronounce it, Eam. In again, it was said, in a bale of cloth from London, which might have come from the Far East. And it had got into the village, and this is a village, Eam, of 500 people. And they were persuaded by the rector, uh, William Momperson, to isolate themselves totally from the rest of Derbyshire. And they did so successfully at the price of half of the population dying, half of those 500 people. Um, And not surprisingly, it's become a great monument to self-sacrifice, you know, and it's great. Lots of people go there to see um what the what this village kind of looks like it's always seemed to me that in the case of Eve, the villagers didn't wholly have a free choice i think what's going on is a, a tacit bargain struck between local magistrates and the inhabitants of the village the, the magistrates in derbyshire saying look we're not going to bring food or give you money to buy things, unless you quarantine yourselves. I think that's what's happening. I once tried to say that in the middle of Eam village, and didn't didn't have had a very, very frosty <coughs> reception, so I kept quiet next time I went there. But I think, you know, there is this um, balance to be struck uh, between the interest of people around a, an infected city or town. And I think one of the extraordinary, not extraordinary, one of the most notable things about plague and the attempt to devise precautions against it is that they are always divisive. It involves shutting somebody up in order to protect other people. There's a most extraordinary case earlier in um, 1631 when there, was, there were some cases of plague in York and the boss, the head of the council in the north in York, Thomas Wentworth, um, insisted that those who caught plague, any plague suspects within the walls of York should be taken outside and isolated outside the walls. And they, they did it successfully. As a result, there was scarcely any epidemic of plague in York, but necessarily he wasn't very popular at the time when he was doing it. As we find today, I don't think there are any painless ways of dealing with an epidemic disease, unless you get the first cases isolated, like um, when we did in York, but otherwise you're in for a divided society somewhere some way or other. And the people who suffer most from the disease are also the ones who suffer most from attempts to control the disease. The disadvantage to get more disadvantage, not less, from the policies we we try to enforce.
2: So should we consider that in the 17th century, the plague is mostly a disease of the poor?
3: That's That's a very good question. When I was working on plague before 1665, in London and in England generally. What struck me with the London plagues in the 16th century, there's a big plague in mortality terms in 1563, um, just after Elizabeth has come to the throne. And looking at the parish register evidence, it seems to be very evenly distributed across the city. It would have been difficult to uh, say from that evidence that the poor were Discriminated against by the disease. And that evenness of mortality disappears gradually over the next hundred years till you get to 1665. But also, what has changed, of course, is the size of the city has got bigger and people love, and social segregation has started to happen, you know, poor living in particular areas. And one doesn't know whether it's the disease that's changed its nature or whether it's the the, the, uh, distinction between rich and poor becomes more visible on the ground. And I think it's probably a bit of both. But no one in 1563 would have said in London, this is a disease of the poor. They might have thought, we'd better keep away from those dirty people who live next door. But that's, that's quite a different thing from what you're getting by 1665, I think. It's partly a story in the case of plague of a victory, a victory against plague. It didn't come back again, but the costs of doing that were quite enormous. And the people who suffered, who paid the price for that victory, were the very poor, who were being shut up with no help.
2: Given this huge level of suffering, I was interested to learn more about how the plague had been explained at the time and whether it had been blamed on any individual or group.
1: Yes, it is interesting, isn't it? Um, This is part of what makes his account so remarkable. It's almost without judgment, whereas um, some other sources, now I'm thinking of Thomas Vincent's um, God's Retribution, I can't remember the name of the pamphlet that came out two years later. Um, Vincent was a a firebrand Anglican preacher uh, who did stay in London as well during that summer. And... uh, he, he was very clear that the, the perpetrator, the, the, the reason that this terrible um, thing had been visited on the city was uh, the moral condition of the people. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't a, a class-based representation of any sort, but uh, as far as he was concerned, and he was encouraging his congregations to, to see the plague in that sense, uh, that, that, that it really was a punishment uh, for the wicked which did create a problem for people like Vincent later on when the, the plague began to abate because people would justly reason, ah, well, I guess all the sinners have been killed, so I guess we must be the, the good guys, we must be the elect, uh, which, you know, it's kind of took, a, uh, took the wind out of his sails, you might say.
2: Yet, as Paul explains, there were more sensible explanations of what was going on and how people could stay safe.
3: There were handbooks telling people how to uh, socially distance themselves, as we would say, from people who might be infected. So there's a handbook, I think in 1625, telling people that if if you pass someone else in the street, you must stay two paces away from them, not get any nearer for fear of catching plague, so There are all these precautionary, sensible precautionary uh, tactics which have influenced the ways in which infectious diseases have been treated ever since,
2: really. Though there were also some recommended cures from the time, which might sound a bit
3: stranger to us today. All sorts of things, but well, who's to say they don't exist today? Yeah. <laughs> you, and I may, you and I may think there are very few of them. I mean, for the historian, it's very difficult to... Uh, I mean, it's easy to note these extraordinary phenomena and assume that they're common, when they probably weren't. I think most people were sensible, but what they didn't know, and I ought perhaps to have said this much earlier on, what they didn't know was that this was a disease carried by rats and carried from rats to human beings by fleas. They didn't know that. They thought it was in the air or the touching a patient. You might, you might get it. They didn't realize the uh, environmental conditions in which plague not only survived, but flourished. There were striking instances that I found where the contemporaries came very close to identifying these things as a physician. Uh, A French physician in London in 1665 who starts off, as many of the books about plague do, by saying, one of the first symptoms of plague are the tokens, spots on the skin. And he says, these spots are very like the spots made by fleas, bites made by fleas. (laughs) And he doesn't jump that extra step. And similarly with that, it's quite interesting that the uh, the Bricklayers' Company of London in the 1650s, before the plague, say uh, building houses of timber, very old-fashioned thing to do, you know. And if you build brick houses, you get many less vermin in these houses, including rats. And they now go on, they do it later on in the 18th century, say, Uh, Well, this may be associated with plague, but in the period I'm talking about, 1665, they don't. Contemporaries are to be admired, I think, for knowing that they were working blind, half-blind, in trying to tackle this disease. And who can blame them for heaving a great sigh of relief when it's all over?
2: In reading accounts of the time, I'd not seen much evidence of scam artists and quack doctors offering fake treatments for the disease. And I wondered if
3: Paul knew of any. No. Um, Partly because the... uh, Maybe because the rogues are less visible, they've learned a vocabulary about contagion and infection or non-existence of contagion. You do get, because this is an era, the 17th century, of the scientific revolution in England, you do get people inventing new cures, new uh, especially chemical remedies, which they think are going to uh, cure people of plague. There's no evidence that they ever did. But it seems to me perfectly rational for educated people in London to think, we've never succeeded in curing this disease before. Why not try these newfangled medicines? and they weren't rogues, the people who were selling them and trying them. And some of them were heroes. There's one man whose name I've forgotten now, a, a chemical physician who actually dissected a plague body in order to find out whether his chemical remedies were working. Unfortunately, they weren't. There was no cure. There was no miracle cure. Except to get away from rats and fleas, really.
2: But Keyes did pick up on a few more suspicious cures that Pepys tried at the time?
1: Well, certainly um, the city was full of medical professionals, as they would style themselves, and we would probably call quacks. He did take more remedies than just chewing tobacco on occasion. Uh, For example, he did try, I think it was at some point in July, uh, Venice treacle, as it was known, or theriac, which was uh, a combination of ingredients, mainly poisons. Uh, some 62 different ingredients that had been developed in the first century AD, uh, supposedly worked on a homeopathic level. Uh, So just trace elements of these various things. He was uh, given plague water by Lady Carteret, uh, the wife of his superior in the the Navy office, uh, which appeared to just be an infusion of uh, fairly benign herbs.
2: Thinking about the broader picture in London, I was keen to know how the city was still managing to function through this period, with such a huge and disruptive disease spreading fast through its population.
3: So overall, it seems to me quite striking that the basic activities of government were still maintained, although people were dying in such huge numbers. The administrative fabric of the city was somehow held together and that especially, it seems to me, at the level of the parish. So what you'll find in these parishes, over 100 parishes in London, what you'll find is that they are capable parish officers somehow of recording, counting, and burying vast numbers of the dead, 80,000 80, people, which is quite an astonishing thing for them to do, actually.
2: I was really surprised to hear him say 80,000.
3: The 80,000 figure, 80 or 90,000, is of actual burials recorded in the bills of mortality. Not necessarily attributed to plague. The bills of mortality um, were supposed to record the diseases that people died of, but it's well known that they quite often tried to call plague something else, in order to not have the family shut up and so on. So I think the 80,000 deaths is probably a minimum number of people who died from plague. On the other hand, you have to acknowledge that, I said London was the largest city with half a million people in it. A lot of those had left So one's not measuring 80,000 against half a million, but 80,000 against, I don't know, 400,000 or something, so that the mortality level is actually quite high. Not as high as it had been in some plagues earlier on, like the Black Death, obviously, a third of the population of Europe died. but it still was a monstrous burial load for the city to... uh, to survive, really, and it does survive. So, as I said, it does survive somehow.
1: As, as something that, that impressed me um, was, was the extremely good coordination of the authorities in producing the bills of mortality. Uh, every parish had to make the report of deaths, you know, and causes of death. There's actually a form which they just filled in, you know, with with figures, uh, all the possible uh, ways that a person could die in the 17th century. Uh, Teeth was uh, one of the, the more common uh, reasons for death. Uh, th- they would have to submit these on, on Tuesday at a certain hour of the day. Uh, they'd be collated on Wednesday and printed up and distributed on Thursday morning, first to the authorities, and within several hours you could you could buy a copy on the streets. So it's uh, extremely well coordinated, despite the fact that the, the statistics, of course, are profoundly misleading. How were these misleading? We're pretty sure that the uh, the bills of mortality were downplaying that the impact of the plague itself was that the people were very keen, obviously, to, to keep their houses from being shut up. Uh, now, uh, if you were suspected of having somebody in the house uh, with plague, you would get a visit by a searcher, so-called. Uh, usually, uh, an old woman with very, very little uh, medical knowledge uh, who would make the decision. Now, these, these searches were very poorly paid, so it was relatively easy, even for a modest household, to to kind of, you know, uh, I- introduce a little bit of doubt in her mind and a penny or two for her purse to, to, to give some other cause of death.
2: I was keen to hear about the end of the outbreak. What do we know about how it all starts to come
3: to a close? Towards the end, people begin to come back and to fill the vacant slots. And the to 6 proves to be the last Great Plague in England, although it might well not have been. There were always fears of plague returning, coming in from Turkey perhaps via the Mediterranean. And in 1720, there's a particular panic when there was a great and famous plague in Marseilles, in Provence, in the south of France. And there were great fears that the plague might well be brought by the ships into the port of London or other ports around the British Isles. And the British government prepared its defences in case plague should arrive. So there were quarantine precautions, and they were precautions should plague hit London. If London was to be hit by plague in 1720, the British government decided there should be armed guards around the city to prevent anybody leaving if plague took hold there, just as there were armed guards around uh, the city of Marseilles in France. Not surprisingly, there was a great outcry about British liberties in 1720. and The uh, legislation which was going to Parliament had to be abandoned. The government was fortunate the plague did not arrive, but it might have been a close run thing. Two ships from Cyprus with suspect cargoes were stopped in quarantine in Kent in the Medway in 1720, and in the end, they were burnt. The ships and their cargo were burnt. And who's to say that that was what stopped another plague in London? There might have been other reasons. But you can see that the danger of plague seemed still to be there in the early 18th century. After that, there comes a moment when the british and the maritime powers generally in europe begin to think the plague is no longer a threat and they think that and it's partly justified in thinking that by the vast resources that states in europe are putting into quarantine precautions of various kinds not only against shipping but on Borders between countries, between one city and another. There's a whole host of quarantine measures being adopted across Europe in the early 18th century. And it seems to me that they had a marked effect cumulatively. I mean, you could never say that a quarantine was successful, but take them all together. And they do seem to account for the... Quite amazing, in retrospect, historical facts, that there was no plague in Europe, in Western Europe, after 1740. It had disappeared, although there was still plague in Turkey and the Levant on the southern side of the Mediterranean, in Egypt and Turkey, until the 1840s. So you might say that, in the end, the precautions that these people were taking in self-defense against plague were successful. You might also say, well, the costs involved in terms of increasing mortality for those people who were shut up in the City of London or in Lazaretian hospitals elsewhere were indeed very large. But I think that's the long-term story, the trajectory of the history of plague from 1665 onwards.
2: And, as Paul points out, it wouldn't be fair to judge our ancestors too harshly, given how little information they had about how this disease was spreading.
3: They're fighting an unseen enemy. They don't know what it is that they're fighting, but they do. what they do see is that the poor tend to get it more quickly than we get it. So we're going to get out, or we're going to avoid them, or whatever. It's tempting to say that we're not wholly unlike that. I mean, I I am tempted to say, look at the miseries in old people's homes. Is that not a case of discrimination of a kind in the COVID um, pandemic we've been going through? I think we have to examine ourselves very carefully before saying, oh, we're much more enlightened than people were in the past.
2: Before we finished our conversation, I wanted to clear one thing up. Did the Great Fire of London really have anything to do with the ending of the play?
3: I I don't think the Fire of London had anything to do with it at all. So the fire destroyed houses largely in the centre of the city, within the walls, in the old business community. And as I've already said, plague was in the suburbs, in the lousy housing in the suburbs. And that they weren't burnt, those houses were not burnt. They, I mean, they may have been pulled down and rebuilt in brick a bit later on. But the fire doesn't destroy the plague at all. End of story.
2: At the start, I promised you a bonus conversation about another famous author and his own experiences of earlier plague outbreaks. I'd like to introduce you to my good friend and colleague, Emma Smith, professor of Shakespeare studies and fellow at my own Hartford College. In our video call, the Wi-Fi let us down on a few occasions, but I'm sure you'll agree that Emma's insight into this period more than makes up for that.
0: So Shakespeare's baptised in Holy Trinity Church in Stratford-upon-Avon in 1564 and just weeks after um, the notification of his baptism, the vicar writes this very ominous phrase, "Hic in pestis, here began the plague, here begins the plague. Uh, and we can see the effects of that plague just in the number of funerals. Um, the death tally in, in Stratford is pretty high uh, and it's a really sort of well it's an amazing example actually of how uh shakespeare has this first brush with the plague as a as a tiny infant and and a good reminder actually of all the, the the sort of counterfactuals of people who die in any kind of pandemic you never know what they would have gone on to do when you start to think of it from the
2: point of view of somebody who escaped it thinking about the plague in the context of shakespeare's period would it have been seen as an endemic disease at that time
0: yeah, this is something that they, uh, that in the, the late 16th, early 17th century, people live alongside, they're not, they're not trying to beat it and they're not waiting for it to be over, they're, it's just, it's kind of part of life.
2: I'd read that one of the earliest ways plague impacted on Shakespeare was in the closing of the theatres in London. What do we know about that period?
0: So we don't know exactly when Shakespeare goes to London to try and make it as a playwright. and we don't really know much about the the kind of thought processes and the planning that went into that. But what we do know is that pretty early on in his uh, attempts uh, to to, to be a London playwright and before the foundation of the company with which he's associated, the Chamberlain's Men, we know that there's a a prolonged period of plague which shuts the theatres and uh, in 1592 to three and it's kind of interesting if you think about sort of freelancers effectively freelancers in the theater now i mean that's a really tough time for them shakespeare was a freelancer and not necessarily a very uh, an altogether experienced one and what he does during that period is something he doesn't do again even though plague does close the theaters uh, at other times in his career he turns to a completely different genre The genre of narrative poetry and he writes two long poems, uh, Venus and Adonis and Lucrece, which we tend to call the Rape of Lucrece, both of which are based on Ovid. They're of a really fashionable kind of erotic narrative poem that uh, writers like Christopher Marlowe um, and a bit later John Marston are associated with their works aimed really at clever young men and certainly Venus and Adonis which is uh, all about how the goddess Venus has the hots for the beautiful boy Adonis who prefers hunting. Uh, and she just keeps throwing herself at him really and I mean kind of hard to imagine why that was such a success with young young men at the Inns of Court but for some reason uh, for some reason it was so Shakespeare writes these two long poems both dedicated uh, to a wealthy patron that was what you did if you wrote poetry and they were a huge success um, and that that's so interesting to me because it does look as if Shakespeare could have continued to make it as a as a poet. And yet he throws himself back into the, the world of the theatre uh, as soon as the theatres reopen. And that's the medium in which he wants to make his, uh, his name and, and, and make his, uh, his career from, from thence forward. There are a few other poems, but poetry or, or non-dramatic poetry is, is not really Shakespeare's
2: thing. In what reminds me of our current experience, plague impacted on the whole of the theatre industry at the time.
0: We can see that living with the plague is one of the things that the theater industry in shakespeare 's time has to has to come to terms with. And one document which really uh, brings that home is, is, is a really uh, striking one. It's when King James, the sixth of Scotland, who becomes the first of England uh, in 1603, when he takes up the English throne, written uh, really soon after that, he takes on the patronage of the one of the leading acting companies, and it's the company associated with Shakespeare, the Chamberlain's Men. They become called the King's Men. And the, the sort of letters that adopt the King's Men uh, give them permission to perform both in London and across the kingdom as soon as the plague lifts and makes it possible for performances again. Um, and it, it's a great document and in some ways quite a moving document for us now thinking about theatre in a very perilous state, that this is almost the high point of Shakespeare's companies recognition this is this must have been an absolute red letter day for them they've got the king's patronage but they have also got that when the theaters can't open
2: theaters being closed is really the main impact of the plague of shakespeare's life but i remember reading that his son hamnet had died of the disease and wondered if that was true there's long been uh, interesting speculation that this
0: was a plague death, perhaps most recently and brilliantly by Maggie O'Farrell in in her novel, which is called Hamnet, uh, which is a completely brilliant novel, which I recommend to everybody. And like all novels, uh, all great novels, it's probably not true. Um, And I think that because um, plague transmission tended to result in uh, household, you know, a, a lot of household illness or household fatalities. And so far as we can see in the extended Uh, Shakespeare household in 1596, young Hamnet is the only uh, only casualty. So that makes it less likely uh, that that's a a plague death.
2: Just before we get into Shakespeare's own references to plague, I wanted briefly to set the scene with some of the other writing we know about from the early part of the 17th century. How was plague talked about in those contemporary works?
0: So in 1603, the year uh, that the heaviest year of plague deaths—a year uh, dubbed, ironically, by um, Shakespeare's fellow writer Thomas Decker, "the Wonderful Year." That's the year that sees the big outbreak of publications about plague, plague hygiene, and plague, uh, plague sort of containment measures. We might have looked at these documents about about early modern plague and the things people were saying, like. Um, you know, take honey for it, or uh, eat toast, or you know this this kind of thing. We would have just said, oh, they were so they, they were so ill-educated, or they had such little idea about disease then. Um, and actually, seeing how people try to explain a really difficult and for most of us scientifically inexplicable plague or, or, or pandemic now, and the you know five G and all of that. I mean, in brackets, really. This is, I'm not suggesting that this is true, but but there are people saying that, aren't there? Saying that this, you know, this is to do with, um, you know, there are all kinds of, of, of kind of ideas about where this comes from and therefore what you might be able to do to protect yourself. And what were plays like
2: at that time?
0: I, th- I think theatre, my sense of what the theatre is like in this period is that it's a really escapist form. It's where you go to get away from everyday life. We don't really have... Kitchen sink drama in this period, not least because I don't really have kitchen sinks, but that oh, we're, we're not—it's not a really realist or a kind of gritty kind of. Uh, it's much more fairy tale, romantic, much more far away. Um, you know, we, we always think about the way characters talk in Shakespeare, and think, well, nobody really talked like that. The whole point is that this is an experience which is a, which is different from everyday life. It's a heightened experience. It's an exalted one. It takes you away from your everyday uh, experience. And I guess that's something that you need even more, perhaps, when when things are when things are difficult, than when than when things than in good times. So the theatre is performing a social, a psychological function. And I think it's the function of release or of or of escape. Largely, going to the theatre to see a play about the plague was probably the last thing you would have wanted to do in 1603 or, or, or in 1609 or whatever. Um, and, and it's interesting to think about, I don't know, Busby Berkeley musicals during the depression or something. You know, what people want is big entertainment that takes them away from what's really happening they don 't necessarily want to go and have a mirror held up to how how life is, and it 's kind of existential t- traumas now we do get a lot of tragedies I- d- during this period, uh, so the period sixteen three to nine is is, is the period um, uh, where Shakespeare writes tragedies and then and then moves to the later sort of tragic comedies of, of his last period so certainly there 's an engagement with mortality and with the questions that tragedy is always asking about um the nature of the good life uh what what makes the things that happen happen i think those questions continue to be under shakespeare's sort of microscope but what i think he does is to really push back against one of the major traumas of of plague Um, it's the thing that the French theorist Girard talks about, which is the, the sort of the absolute terrible indistinctness of the plague burial pit, that, that we're all, all our beautiful, unique human life ends in this kind of, um, you know, just being thrown indiscriminately into, into a pit where, no, where we're all mingled and nobody knows who we are. I mean, tragedy or tragedy in Shakespeare's hands is the complete opposite of that. Tragedy is all about... The individual and the, the sort of sublime beauty of that individual, even if they're behaving terribly or they're in a terrible situation, they are unique and poetic and centre stage in ways which um, seem to, to, to sort of spotlight individuality in the face of this erasure and indistinctness that, that mass plague or, or a mass illness, mass disease
2: might see, seem to promote. We're talking about plague as an endemic disease, always there in the background. How much did this impact on culture at the time?
0: I think the fact that the plague was endemic it, it is a really important element in how uh, plague culture, plague literature works in this period. And there's the play, uh, not by Shakespeare, but by Ben Jonson, his great rival, called The Alchemist, which um, takes place in a house... In, in London, which is shut up and only has the servants there because the master has gone to the country to escape. A production that's, that, that's raised immediately when the theatres reopen, so that it's a post-plague play. But looking back now, it seems to me much more difficult to say that that's, that that's the case. Rather than it being post-plague, it's really inter-plague We've always thought about it as, you know, saying goodbye to the plague, but looking really at how that disease worked, I think it's much more uh, with a sense the plague will come back. Uh, It always does. It never goes away.
2: Moving on to Shakespeare's work specifically, some of the clearest references to plague in his plays would seem to be where it's used as a curse.
0: Pretty much every one of Shakespeare's plays includes uh, a curse, you know, wishing the plague or, or bestowing the plague on somebody or a, a plague a on, on both your houses, you know, f- famously in Romeo and Juliet. That feels to us, uh, or did feel perhaps... Um, just a figure of speech, something that's that's, um, quite a mild oath compared with uh, some of the um, interdiction on blasphemy, which is one of the forms of censorship that comes in in the first decade of the 17th century, and that plague might seem to be a more polite way of saying, you know, Jesus Christ or or something. But I think back in context, you know, we Wishing the plague on somebody, as Caliban does on his master Prospero, for instance, in *The Tempest*, uh, m- probably felt, a, a, or, as, or as King Lear does on, on his daughter, might have registered as a much more powerful kind of curse. That, that it's almost as if they bring the symptoms of plague into conversation. You're not you're not being allowed to forget the the, the sort of the presence uh, of this uh, invisible disease.
2: But I don't recall anyone in Shakespeare's plays actually becoming a victim of plague.
0: So nobody in Shakespeare's plays dies of plague, they die of all kinds of elaborate and theatrical means, Um, but nobody dies of plague apart from just a bit of a stretch but maybe Romeo and Juliet. So uh, what happens in that play of course is that uh, friar lawrence sends a message to romeo to say you're going to hear that she's died, dead but she isn't this is all part of my plan uh, and it's only towards the end of the play that we discover that that message never reaches romeo because the carrier was caught up in a in a quarantine situation was 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 forced to quarantine um, because of a uh, you know, crossing into an infected area and therefore was un, unable to deliver that and it always feels in the play if that one Uh, terrible uh, coincidence, fatal coincidence, had not happened, then maybe Romeo and Juliet would not have died. Maybe the tragedy would not have unfolded as it did. So um, it's a really interesting example of how, in the background of the play, is this sense of a plague environment which audience members recognise and understand that's echoed in in the language of the play in Mercutio's famous curse, uh, a plague, a plague on both your houses. So it's there in the background but really in the foreground uh, the, the consequences of plague are much more hidden or much more oblique or, or much more um, poetic I suppose that w- what you've got is two young people uh, falling into this fatal love Um, you've got the symptoms of love which lots of writers at the time including Shakespeare in his poem Venus and Adonis compared to the symptoms of plague Um, there's a moment when Olivia in Twelfth Night talks about falling in love and says even so quickly can one catch the plague so the, the, the 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 poetic associations between uh, love and a sense that love was fatal and uh, uh, and sort of pleasurably physical and plague uh, are always present. So Romeo and Juliet, the plague that Romeo and Juliet have got is a plague of forbidden love and it takes their lives just as it took the lives predominantly of young people. One of the things about bubonic plague is its mortality rates uh, contrary to what we are now used to, mortality rates are much higher in the kind of teens and twenties, uh, and it's much less virulent in older people. So there's something about that youth in Romeo and Juliet, and the the kind of the passion and the fire, and the sense that falling in love is like getting an infection, and there's nothing. It's all consuming, and and sort of marvelous and doomed in all these ways. That feels to me a way of uh, a very particular way of narrativising and romanticising plague, of course, uh, really getting pubonic plague uh,
2: is not at all like that. During our conversation I began to wonder whether Emma had started to see any of Shakespeare's work in a new light after our recent collective experiences of Covid.
0: One of the things I think I love about Shakespeare's plays is how they how our contemporary world can help you see them in quite different ways, and that's happened to me over this uh, lockdown period. And the play that I've come to see completely differently, really, is Measure for Measure. So uh, we had we heard lots about Shakespeare wrote King Lear in lockdown, you know, and and I'm not sure that that's a particularly helpful. Um, Uh, sort of supposition. But Measure for Measure, which is about, uh, comes from 1603-4, that period of of closures uh, at the beginning of the reign of of King James, is about a city, a diseased city. And in fact, in Measure for Measure, the disease is sort of sexual immorality and therefore venereal disease, is is the pox rather than the plague. Um, But it doesn't take much to shift our imagination across into the more pressing um sort of public health uh crisis of that period which 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 is plague uh and where um the the play seems to dramatize two distinct um two distinct kind of approaches to living with plague and one is a kind of um super spreader kind of mentality or a sort of um i read a bit about um uh D- disaster, disaster sex or or uh, end of the world sex as it was called uh, in uh, in New York after nine eleven the kind of comfort uh, physical contact as as comfort uh, and as a kind of uh, uh, um, a psychological antidote against against plague so there are the super spreaders who are the, who are the the kind of brothel uh, owners and frequenters and they 're all about. Um, human contact and the, the kind of carnal world in which, we, in which we live. And then there are the, the kind of uh, neurotics, uh, the sort of noli matangare, kind of I can't be touched, I will immediately be um, uh, infected. Uh, and that's sort of Angelo, um, the, the the deputy, Isabella, uh, the nun. And between them, there is no kind of moderation about how to live together, how to live together in, 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 in the city. The play shows that you're either uh, the, the, the kind of the locus of disease or you're so separate from it that you're hardly alive at all and there's no, there's no kind of middle ground now. We always knew Measure for Measure was a play about extremes, but it's come to, to me to seem to be a play much more about the extremes of living, living under plague than I had previously ever been able to notice. It is interesting that a book like Camus' uh, The Plague, which has been one of the great uh, reads of 2020, was a book we always used to think about as not being about the plague. So the plague was, you know, if you were to say, "Oh, this is about a plague that happened," it would be the most naive reading of all. That it seems that, you know, the plague is a metaphor for all kinds of, all kinds of other of other things that are that are going on. Now, in some ways, that seems to me the opposite for Shakespeare. That we don't get a play called "The Plague." We don't really get plague sent to stage. Um, other things, though, are a metaphor for it. I think that plague is pretty omnipresent in in Shakespeare, but it's always. In translation, maybe that's the way to think of it.
2: Next time on Future Makers, we leave the plague behind for now and meet the second of our pandemic diseases, smallpox. We'll discover the havoc that smallpox brought to 18th century Europe, how the health profession reacted, and why a milkmaid may, or may not, have inspired the concept of vaccination. I hope you can join me then. For the next episode of our History of Pandemic season. I'm Peter Milliken, and you've been listening to Future Makers. Future Makers was produced in house at the University of Oxford. The show was presented by Peter Milliken from Hartford College. Our voice actor at the beginning of the show was Tom Wilkinson. The soundtrack was created and produced by Richard Watts. And the show was produced by Ben Harwood and me, Steve Pritchard. Thanks again for listening to the History of Pandemics.